to When God Was Queer with your host, Dakota St. Clair. Hi, and welcome back to When God Was Queer for episode one in the beginning. Last week, I mentioned that I call myself an omnitheist, and that actually generated quite a few questions from folks who had never heard the term before. So I wanted to lay some groundwork in terms of important terminology when it comes to the gods, their nature, and the various belief systems built around them. First, belief in a god or gods immediately falls into one of two categories, deism or theism. Deism is the belief in a prime mover, a creator god, responsible for everything in existence. However, this god is impersonal. It doesn't take any interest in humanity, it's not going to answer prayers, perform miracles, intervene in human affairs, anything like that. Seems pretty straightforward. Now, theism, on the other hand, is literally any belief outside of what we just described. The god or gods who uh, exist may or may not have created the universe or our planet, but they also may or may not answer prayers, perform miracles, intervene in human affairs, demand worship, pass judgment, offer life after death, or even reveal themselves to humanity. The most important difference being these gods are knowable. They have names, personalities, likes, and dislikes, and it's out of this—it's uh, out of these gods—that the majority of the world's various religions were born. Interestingly, each of those religions and belief systems can be identified by a different specific approach to theism. Here are some examples. First, we have monotheism, which is simply the belief in the existence of only one god. There's monolatry, which is the worship of only one god, while not ignoring the fact that other gods may exist. Then we have henotheism, which is the preference of one god among many, uh, usually in a pantheon. Think a priestess of Venus. Uh, then we have cathenotheism, however, uh, which is an indication of the intention and approach made by an adherent in several major polytheistic faiths, especially in the ancient world. It states that when one prays to one of the gods in a pantheon, for that time, the god in question is elevated to the status of the supreme god. Speaking of polytheism, it's pretty simple. It's the belief in many gods. However, and this is a common mistake, it doesn't actually indicate all gods. Furthermore, most qualify that belief on a spectrum which has long existed, soft and hard polytheism. You see, soft polytheism essentially posits that all gods are aspects of the same god, while hard polytheism sees the gods as totally separate entities. And if soft polytheism doesn't go far enough for you, there's pantheism, which sees not only all gods as one, but sees everything in existence as also either within God or as an emanation or manifestation of God. It's essentially everything is God and God is everything. Omnitheism, by contrast, is the belief that all gods, known, unknown, forgotten, all exist and are separate, autonomous, and potentially knowable. So, now that we've handled those, um, it's important to note that all of these concepts are actually based on the existence of a god or the gods. Uh, there's actually also 
value judgment theisms, which are interesting. So you have, for example, eutheism, which is the belief that gods are wholly benevolent. You have dystheism, which is gods are not wholly good and they're possibly evil. And maltheism, which is the gods are absolutely wholly malicious. Oh, and uh, there's also mesotheism, which is just, it's not just the belief in the gods, but also the abject hatred of God or the gods. Of course, if there's theism, then there's also non-theism. You've obviously heard of atheism, which, to be clear, is a judgment made by an individual based on evidence they have available to them in which they, conf they are confident enough to assert that there are no gods. However, there's a lot more approaches to non-theism than you'd think. There's non-theism itself, which is essentially just opting out. There's apatheism, which basically says, who cares if there's a god? Uh, Anti-theism, which is pretty much the opposite of apatheism, because anti-theism tends to be pretty militant, even uh, evangelical, if you will, uh, and basically says that all theism is either evil, foolish, or somehow beneath our dignity as humans and should be done away with. Uh, unfortunately, anti-theism is often wrongfully conflated with atheism, which is a personal choice and actually doesn't indicate what you think anybody else should do. Uh, there's also agnosticism, which is a statement that one doesn't feel comfortable making any assertion either way, either for or against the existence of God or the gods. And there's agnosticism, which is one of my favorites. Uh, it's a term coined by a rabbi, and essentially it says, since God is unknowable, the question is itself flawed and unanswerable. So... Back to today's topic at hand, uh, in this episode, we're going to explore the myths which revolve around the primal androgen. Well, what's that? Uh, the primal androgen is a universal motif in mythologies around the world, and it goes one of two ways. It's either a human, like the first human, or a god, like the first god, who begins everything, and is both or neither male and female. And it's this inherent combination of genders or inherent genderlessness, which is seen as an indication that they would be more powerful than any other god or any other human. Now, let's start out with the human side. Um, the most readily available example we have of this would actually be Adam from the Abrahamic faiths. Uh, according to a variety of Jewish and Christian mystical traditions, Adam was the first created human and was utterly perfect and that he was the perfect marriage of male and female, the primal androgen and a complete human. These uh, beliefs tend to link the fall of humanity, not just with original sin, but with the division of humanity into two incomplete genders. Interestingly, classical Judaism actually acknowledged up to six genders. Uh, they were Zachar, Nekeva, Androgynos, Tomtom, Ailonit, and Sares. Uh, Zachar is a term derived from the word for a pointed sword, and it refers to a penis. It's usually translated as male in English. Nekeva, likewise, is derived from the word for a crevice, alluding to a vulva, and it's usually translated as female in English. Uh, and then we have androgynos, which was used to refer to folks with a mixture of the two aforementioned types of sexual characteristics. And you have tumtum, -tum, 
which referred to someone whose sexual characteristics were either indeterminate or were obscured. I like the obscured part, maybe by like, I don't know, a merkin or a fig leaf or a cloud. Um, then there's Ilonit, which was used to refer to a person assigned female at birth who would go on to develop quote unquote male characteristics at puberty and were thought to be infertile. Finally, Saris was used to refer to a person who was assigned male at birth who would go on to develop quote-unquote female characteristics, uh, usually gynecomastia, among other things, at puberty and or lacked a penis. A distinction was drawn, actually, between the naturally occurring Saris Hama and the Saris Adam, who was possible through human intervention, uh, like primitive surgery, basically. Um, it should be noted, by the way, that the existence of these other genders is vouched for through a combined total of 566 individual references in Mishnah and Talmud, as well as 1,104 references in Classical Midrash and the Jewish Law Codes. Now, the most common myths surrounding the primal androgen uh, are more on the god side. They tell of a deity able to create something out of nothing to birth the whole universe. It is this which denotes their androgyny as sacred, that they are seen as uh, self-fulfilling, that they are seen as able to do so without a partner or anyone else's help. There are countless examples of this kind of god, and today we're going to examine just a few by bopping around the globe. So we'll start our journey in Africa with Muari, uh, the supreme creator, according to the Shona traditional religion, where it's believed that they are the author of all things and that all life both springs forth and is contained within them. Uh, they are also known as Musikivanu, Musiki, Tenji, Nkosi, and Ishe. Muari is understood as being omnipotent, specifically in their rulership over all other spirits. They are seen as kind and loving. They control the forces of the earth, from the fertility of the land to when it rains, uh, but also to the fate of journeys, social order, political life. And Muari's worship can actually be traced back at least as far as the reign of King Matapa of the Mutapa kingdom on the Zambezi River, uh, which would have been the kingdom of Zimbabwe. And the religion of this kingdom was highly organized around oracles known as Mondoro, who were, uh, who were known to consult various spirits and uh, especially the royal ancestors. Now, interestingly, the Mondoro did not just communicate with spirit worlds, but their day-to-day -day function was actually as the oral historians of the kingdom, carefully recording the names and the great deeds of past kings. And the religion itself was guarded by a powerful and influential priesthood uh, and was centered in shrines maintained within the capital. Uh, people most commonly uh, would employ, and still do employ, the use of oracles and mediums in order to consult Wari, and there's a very good reason. It's a deeply held belief amongst the Shona that no one has the right or authority to call upon Wari without first observing specific protocols, which include airing grievances and making supplications through a medium who is usually at the time possessed by ancestral spirits. Uh, either the people will approach them through a medium, or Moari will speak to the people through an oracle. This belief is so devoutly held that it's thought breaking this taboo will result in leprosy. 
In many places, Mori is referred to as male. However, this actually is a result of Christian missionaries uh, very, uh, in almost a very sinister way, using the name Mori in order to evangelize to the Shona about their own god. Uh, so, staying in Africa, we're going to move to West Africa, where we're going to meet Nana Buruku. She's also variously known as Nana Buruku, Nana Buluku, Nana Buku, and Nanan Buklu. And she is the supreme being and the great mother in the West African traditional religion of the Fon people in Benin and Dahomey, and the Ewe people in Togo. Uh, many have argued that she is the most revered or most influential deity in West Africa at large, and she's acknowledged and venerated by many peoples, including the Yoruba, the Igbo, and others. Uh, and according to uh, many of these peoples, she is said to have both male and female essences, although she's typically gendered uh, with she, her pronouns. Uh, she gave birth to Mawu, the moon, Lisa, the sun, and all the universe. After this, she retired and moved on, leaving worldly matters to the twins, Mawu and Lisa. Uh, this is actually a pretty interesting um, motif that you'll find in a lot of these uh, different mythologies that we're going to go over in the coming weeks, where whoever the creator god is basically makes everything and, and in almost a deistic way, then moves on. Um, you'll especially see that in the Orisha episode that we have coming up. So, where Nana Baruku is the prime creator, Mawulisa, now a hyphenated uh, single name, is the secondary creator. You see, Mawulisa is the marriage and merger of the twins into a single form, which is seen as multi-gendered and constantly changing. It's said that Mawulisa created the world, made it orderly, created plants, animals, and humans, all in just four days. On day one, they created the world and humanity. On day two, the earth was made suitable for human life. On day three, humans were given intellect, language, and the senses. And on day four, humanity received the gift of technology. Kind of beats the hell out of Genesis if you ask me. Uh, next, we're going to travel to the Philippines, where Ware mythology has a supreme deity who, like Malulisa, is also a dyad. You see, dyad is the term for a single deity comprised of two separate entities. The entities are seen as separate, but moving in concert, uh, and will often be defined sort of as aspects uh, of the larger whole. The feminine aspect is known as Malayon, the Ancient One. She's the ancient, uh, wise, and understanding face, whereas Makapatag, the Leveler, is the masculine aspect and is the fearful, tempestuous, and destructive face. And for the Angaju Dayak people of Borneo, there's something, again, similar. There's the supreme god, Mahatalajata. And it's interesting here because they're actually illustrated as separate, but still connected. See, Mahatala, the masculine part of the god, rules the upper worlds and is often depicted as a hornbill soaring above the clouds, living on a mountaintop, while Jata, the feminine part, rules the underworlds from under the sea, where she takes on the form of a great water serpent. These two manifestations are linked to one another through a jewel-encrusted bridge, which can be witnessed in our world whenever a rainbow occurs. They're served by many people, uh, which can be... They, they fall under different names and duties. However, the most important are the Basir, who are uh, these, some would say, third-gender shamans, 
I'll, I'll let them describe themselves in their own native language, which translates to water serpents, which are at the same time hornbills, which I think says it all. Now, among the Ibandayak people, uh, there are similar shamans known as Manangbali, and a girl who's fated to join the Manangbali will dream of becoming a woman and being summoned by the deity Manjaya Raja Manang. And that's, again, pretty interesting because uh, Manjaya Raja Manang began as a male deity. However, when their sister-in-law fell ill, they became the world's first healer. And once they successfully brought her back to health, the treatment also resulted in their transformation into an androgen or a goddess, depending on who's telling it. Uh, now, it's off to the icy north to see the Inuit, for whom Sedna is one of the creator gods. She's also called, she's also called Arna Kwagsak, Sasuma Arna, Nerivik, and Nuliayuk. She is also the sovereign ruler of the sea and all marine life. She's known as the mother or mistress of the sea, and she's seen as Gynandris or intersex in many myths, and is most often served by two-spirit shamans. Some of the more popularized myths depict her as bisexual or as a lesbian, living with her wife at the bottom of the ocean. Importantly, her story is told through the creation myth, uh, which explains how she came to be the ruler of Adliun, which is the Inuit underworld. However, her story has been told many times in many ways. In one legend, she is daughter of the creator god, born a giant with a ceaseless ravenous hunger, which eventually causes her to attack her own parents. Furious at this monstrous act, her father, Anguta, takes her out to sea and throws her overboard his kayak. As she clutches the kayak for dear life, he chops off her fingers and she sinks down to the underworld, becoming the ruler of the monsters lurking at the bottom of the ocean. Her giant fingers become the seals, walruses, and whales so vital to Inuit life. In other versions, she's a princess, unhappy with any of her suitors, or she's an abused orphan, a beautiful maiden, or an evil mermaid. But pretty much every way it's told, those fingers get chopped, we get seals and whales, and she gets the underworld. So maybe it's unsurprising that she's generally considered a pretty vengeful goddess who has to constantly be placated by hunters and shamans so that she will release the animals that they so depend on. Now, our last entry, I would tell you where we're going on the globe, but we really don't know. Our last entry is as infamous as it is mysterious. It's the Baphomet. Since 1856, the name Baphomet has been associated with the Sabbatic goat, as drawn by French occultist Eliphas Levi. Uh, I'm sure you've seen it before. If you haven't, look it up, because as soon as you see it, you'll be like, oh, I've seen that in horror movies and whatnot. Uh, but basically... The image is interesting. Described by Levi himself, it's the sum total of the universe and alchemical perfection. The infamous image is that of an, al an allegorical figure crafted out of a series of polarities and binaries. Uh, they are human and animal, male and female, transfixed between earth and air, living between day and night. They embody the marriage of the physical and spiritual realms, and the flame above their head represents enlightenment. 
further illuminating the alchem uh, further illuminating the alchemical origins of the image the latin term solve as in dissolve referring to the coming apart of elements and coagula as in coagulate referring to the coming together of elements are each tattooed on their forearms which are gesturing one towards heaven one towards the earth recalling the esoteric maxim as above so below all of this imagery has led to more than a few commentators pointing out the possibility that the Baphomet is a reasonable candidate for the primordial androgen in a variety of traditions, not the least of which is Gnosticism. It's a complex image to be sure, and it's no wonder it's fascinated us for centuries. Uh, but where did it come from? We know it as the basis for the figure on the devil card in the tarot, but does it have anything to do with the devil? As far as we can tell, Baphomet is a term originally used to describe some figure or idol, which the Knights Templar brought back with them from the Crusades. They were later accused by the Church of worshipping this icon and the spirit behind it, as attested to in trial transcripts from the Inquisition in the 14th century. And this apparent scandal and its basically unsolvable nature has led to more than 700 years of speculation, exploration, and conspiracy theories about just what exactly the Baphomet really is. So, I think that there's so much that we can take away from these figures, their attributes, and myths, and it's something we're going to deep dive on next week, which is the inherent power in existing beyond the binary. In the Greco-Roman world, for example, you could join a mystery school by initiating into their secret order and learning the various uh, hidden rituals and practices which belong to that school. As you progressed, you would gain access to some truly useful stuff in what was known as the men's mysteries or the women's mysteries, only one of which was available based on your birth assignment. The men's mysteries tended to be around mathematics, architecture, metallurgy, and the women's mysteries tended to be around midwifery, medicine, and sorcery, as far as we can tell from what's available and what's been recovered. It's important to note, by the way, that the mystery religions were separate but non-competing forms of religious experience aside the civil religion of the era. Now, the only available secrets for any one person to learn was limited to either the male or female mysteries, and this was further extrapolated by the gods and goddesses who oversaw these cults, their practices, and members as their patron. You see, it was they who were seen as delivering these secret things to those present. Uh, side note, when I use the word cult here, it's in its original context, like the Latin cultus, which is uh, the individual veneration and rituals around one or more gods out of a pantheon of gods. So, as we will learn next week, and one of the main myths that I'll tell, it might be dangerous for a human to exist outside of these bounds, but when a god comes along and is so much more than just one of two genders, all hell breaks loose. I want to thank each and every one of you who's decided to join in and explore these myths and legends along with me each week. I'm so excited about next week, and the reason is I actually get to tell uh, one of my all-time favorite myths in its entirety. So stay tuned for episode two, We Were Made For This. I hope you'll join me for it, and until then, be gay, do crime, and remember, the gods are always watching. Bye.